Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am currently in Acts chapter 27. I'm going to cover verses 13 through 32. In this chapter, we won't quite make it to the end of the chapter. Paul is on his journey from Caesarea, where he had been in jail for two years, appealed to Rome in his legal controversy with the Sanhedrin. And the Romans are trying to adjudicate the case. And finally, Festus said, you are a Roman citizen. You can go to Rome. So they took off. And the first part of Acts chapter 27 talks about the first part of the journey. And now we are south of the island of Crete. They were, they had landed at a port called Fair Havens. It was not exactly the best port in the world. There was a better port further west along the southern coast of Crete called Phoenix. And they decided to go there. And unfortunately, they never made it. It was see that they ended up in the middle of the Mediterranean in a horrible storm. So this is where we are. We'll start with verse 13 in Acts 27. When a gentle south wind sprang up, they thought they had achieved their purpose. They weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. What purpose? The purpose to get to that harbor of Phoenix, which I just mentioned, further west along the shore of Crete. A gentle south wind came up. That was perfect. They could tack with that wind and mosey on down westward along the coast of southern coast of Crete until they got to Phoenix. Well, they thought they'd got what they wanted. If the wind had continued in the way that they that it had started out, they would have reached Phoenix in just a few hours, as Jameson Fawcett and Brown said. So this was a perfectly reasonable decision that Julius the centurion and the sailors and the captain, I should say the captain, not the sailors, the captain, and perhaps the owner of the ship too, if he was a different person, they had decided to go to Phoenix. It was perfectly reasonable. But Paul said, don't go. Later on, Paul in verse 21, second part of the verse says, hey, guys, you should have listened to me. But they didn't listen to him. I mean, why should they listen to a landlubber prisoner? we got sailors on board and the soldiers are going to be in chains. I mean, who, why are we going to listen to him? And so they head toward Phoenix. We go to verse 14 of Acts chapter 27. But not long afterward, a fierce wind a fierce wind called the Northeaster rushed down from the island. The NIV Study Bible says that wind was called the Iroquillo. It's well known. It's a typhoon-like. Typhoon means hurricane-like. East-northeast wind. In other words, it was fierce. It was bad. It was a hurricane. It was a killer. And it sprang up all of a sudden. And it came from the northeast. And remember, they're south of... Crete, and so if the wind comes from the northeast, it's blowing over that island and blowing them away south of Phoenix, so they couldn't they couldn't sail into Phoenix. They were trapped by the sudden arrival of the storm. We go to verses 15 and 16 of Acts 27. Since the ship was caught and was unable to head into the wind, we gave way to it and were driven driven along. After running under the shelter of a little island called Cotta, we were barely able to get control of the skiff. I've got a map here looking at Cotta. It is due south, about 23 miles from the port of Phoenix that they were trying to get to. The, the northeastern wind blew them south, and they went under the lee side, the south side of Cotta to protect themselves from the wind a little bit anyway. It was a small island. It never had a large population, as the NET Bible website says, but it probably gave them enough shelter to, so they could try to prepare against the storm. The King James, by the way, translates that as Clauda, and some modern English transliterations have Clauda instead of Cauda, but we're going to call it Cauda. As they were under the, under the lee side, the shelter side of Cauda, they were barely able to get control of the skiff. The skiff is a little boat's knee that they pull behind 
the big ship. Every sailor knows how important it is to get control of that boat because it's basically a lifeboat, the dinghy, if you will. That's how you get a few people to go. If the ship is anchored way offshore, for example, you get people on the dinghy and they can go and land on the on the shore and so forth. And so it's important to have, have that skiff, but they barely were able to get it under control. The ship had probably been towed behind the ship. The dinghy, I'm sorry, the skiff probably had been towed behind the ship according to the NIV Study Bible and Adam Clark. And the NIV Study Bible says that the skiff was probably interfering with progress of the ship and interfering with steering. And it may have been in danger of being crushed against the ship, against the stern of the ship. So they, so they had to take it aboard if they were going, going to save it once it got on board. When Paul says they got control, or we, that's Luke, Luke and Paul, we, the ship's company, were barely able to get control of the skiff, that means... Control means that they probably lashed it down on board to keep it being washed overboard. The wind and the waves were probably blowing that little boat around, and it was probably now full of water, too. So, But they got it. We go to verse 17. After hoisting it up, hoisting the skiff up, the dinghy, they hoisted it up on the deck. They used ropes and tackle and girded the ship. Then fearing they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the drift anchor, and in this way they were driven along. Well, first of all, after hoisting it up, that means hoisting the dinghy up. Then the next thing they did is what the, the ancients called frapping. Let me give you a quote from the Alfred Barnes commentary. Quote, the ancients were accustomed to pass cables or strong ropes around a vessel to keep the planks from springing or starting by the action of the sea. In other words, when the sea starts beating against these ancient ships, the boards wouldn't hold together. So they would, they would run cables around the ship, not, not lengthwise, but crosswise, to hold, try to hold the ship together. Now, I don't know how they did this. I don't know how you got a cable to go under the ship. I guess what you could do is pass it out or, or, across the stern or across the bow and then, and then walk it either frontwards or backwards until the cable is on the ship. I imagine that's how they did it. But anyway, it was a common practice. And when you're doing that, that means you're scared the boat's going to spring leaks. It's going to sink. That's what they were, In fact, that's what they were scared of the whole time they were in this storm. They had another fear. They, fer they were afraid they would run aground on the Sirtis. Well, what's that? That's, as the NIV study Bible says, it's a long stretch of desolate banks of quicksand along northern Africa. And quicksand means that these sand dunes and sandbars and quicksand and sand would shift all the time. So there were no charts. They didn't know where a particular island, a piece of sand or sandbar was going to be. That ship could have hit that and broken up, hit that sand anywhere and broken up, and the sailors would have no idea where they were they would have no way of avoiding trouble there. This is on North, in, on North Africa off the coast of Tunis and Tripoli. Now, it was still a long way off from where they were, but in a boat in a storm like that, the NIV Study Bible says the boat could be driven a long way. In fact, that northeaster storm, the Uroquillo, drove the boat all the way from Crete all the way to Malta in 14 days. So, I mean, they could have easily ended up on the, in the quicksands of North Africa. And by the way, Sirtis is that's now it's the modern-day Gulf of Sidra, sometimes called the Gulf of Sirt, with it, sometimes with an E and sometimes without an E. If you look at the map, you will see Benghazi, which is just outside the Gulf of Sidra, to the northeast as on the coast there as one enters the Gulf, the famous Benghazi, where the American government allowed our ambassadors to get shot to death by terrorists and didn't support them when we should have. So it says that because they were afraid they were going to run aground, on Sirtis, they lowered the drift anchor, and in this way they were driven along. Now, we have a problem here. This is the Holman Christian Study Bible. They translate 
a particular Greek word that's used here, as drift anchor. Now, that translation is not clear. Adam Clark objects to anchor as the translation because he says if they were trying to slow the ship down to keep it off Syrtis by dragging an anchor, that would be quote-unquote foolish in the extreme to ride the storm out in this way. Now, I don't know how much of a mariner Adam Clark was, and I don't know a thing about what it's like to sail ships in storms. I don't like to get on boats. They make me seasick. So I'm a landlubber, but Clark says that's not reasonable. All right, well, if it's not drift anchor, what else might it be? Well, the NIV Study Bible says it's a possibility that the word could be translated mainsail. In other words, they lowered the mainsail. Well, I don't think so. As Adam Clark said, it's hard to believe that they would have taken this long to lower the mainsail. When that Iroquillo, that northeast of first sprang up, that's the first thing you do is lower the mainsail. And they've already been under the Claudus. they got the skiff up. A lot of stuff had gone on by the time they lowered this thing, this whatever it was. And it's not likely to be the mainsail. All right, well, if it's not the anchor, and if it's not the mainsail, what was it? Well, the third option is, and I think this is the correct option in my humble opinion, is that they let down the main mast, not the main sail now, but the main mast, the mast that held the main sail. Now, that's going to take some time, and that's usually his last resort. Adam Clark and Jameson Fawcett and Brown hold to this option. Here's a quote from Adam Barnes, who also, Alfred Barnes, who also holds to this option. They, quote, took down the mast or the yards to which the sails were attached. There's been a great variety of interpretations proposed on this passage. The most probable is that they took down the mast by cutting or otherwise, as is now done in storms at sea to save the ship. They took the mast down. Here's some English translations of this passage. The KGV said they strake sail. Strake, that's a great word, isn't it? Strake. I guess that means they struck the sail, took the sail down. The NASB, the NIV, and the Lexham English Bible says it was a sea anchor they let down, agreeing with the Homer Christian Study Bible. The Amplified says that they took down, the, they let down the gear, sails, and ropes, which goes along with the sail idea. The ESV punts and says the gear. Well, I mean, I guess an anchor could be part of the gear. It's kind of a loose word. Doesn't really tell you what was let down. The news said, translation said they lowered the sail. So it was either the sail, which I don't believe because they would have done that by now, or it was the mast, or it was an anchor. Right, let's just say it's the mast. And in this, they were driven along. All right, so they've got no sail. They've got no mast. they got the, the dinghy on board, and the storm's just blowing them, blowing them westward across the Mediterranean Sea. Verses 18, 19, and 20 of Acts 27. Because we were being severely battered by the storm, they began to jettison the cargo the next day. And, of course, that's the day, that's the sailors. They began to jettison the cargo the next day. All right, the first day, they let down the mainsail. The next day, they started jettisoning the cargo. What was the cargo? That was wheat that they were carrying from Egypt to Rome. That was their profits. Boom. I mean, after all, what would you rather have, your life or your profits? So they started jettisoning the food, the wheat. Now, that didn't mean they jettisoned all their food as we could see. They had food. But they started jettisoning the wheat. That was the second day. Now, in verse 19, on the third day, they threw the ship's gear overboard with their own hands. Now, what might the gear include? The ship's tackle, which would cons be consisted of the spars on the yard arms, the planks, certain planks, perhaps the yard arm with the mainsail attached. Remember, I said they took it down on the first, the sail was probably taken down on the first day of the storm. And then here on the Second day, they took down the, if my interpretation is correct, they lowered the, the, the mast. So that was the second day. And now they're throwing the, 
And on the third day, since this storm arose, they're throwing the ship's tackle overboard. And that would include the mast which they had previously lowered. And also the ropes and the cables and some and maybe some anchors. John Gill suggests anchors, but later on we see in verse 29 they had four anchors, so they obviously didn't throw all, all the anchors overboard if they had more than four. Now, this storm has been raging for three days now. And then in verse 20 it says, For many days neither sun nor stars appeared, and the se severe storm kept raging. So they thought it was bad the first three days. they got 11 more days to go. Many days of no sun, no stars, that means no navigation. And that means now they're totally lost. They don't know where they are. At nighttime, they can't see the stars. In the daytime, they can't see the sun. They are in deep doo-doo. Finally, in verse 20, all hope that we would be saved. This is we as referring to Luke, of course. He's writing this narrative, and he was on board the ship. Finally, all hope that we would be saved was disappearing. They were gradually losing hope. I would have lost hope the first day if it would have been me there. But Paul, even though all hope was disappearing, Paul knew that they were going to make it. He had had a revelation that Jesus had given to him to him earlier. This was after the riot at the Sanhedrin and after the third journey in Jerusalem when Claudius Lysias rescued him and took him before the Sanhedrin. And then he went back into the barracks there at the Antonia Fortress that night. And we read in Acts 23:11, The following night the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. That was a personal vision from Jesus. He said, you're going to Rome to testify. And later on, we're going to see that when Paul stands up to give him a speech, he's going to talk about he had a revelation of an angel that they were going to make it. So Paul knew that they were going to make it. I'm not sure if he had that exactly when he had that revelation of the angel, but he already had the revelation from Jesus a couple of years earlier in Jerusalem that they were going to make it. I guess two years being a fairly long time, he needed another revelation too in the, in the distress, and he got it. Now, why was their hope disappearing? Their only hope was to find land to run the ship onto before it sank. But they couldn't see land because it was dark and there was a storm, so they couldn't see the land, they couldn't navigate, and their biggest problem was the leakiness of the ship, as Jameson Fawcett and Brown said, because in ancient times this was the greatest cause of shipwrecks. So they're about to sink. They can't see where they're going. They desperately need to find some land. And then, of course, they've got to figure out how to get the ship to be run aground on land without foundering and without drowning them all. Now, it says in verse 24, many days neither sun nor stars appear. That's probably the most of the 14 days of the, of the, that are mentioned in verse 27. We haven't get, gotten there yet, but it says in verse 27 that this storm lasted 14 days. So... Let's just assume that all during that 14 days they couldn't see the sun or the stars, they couldn't navigate, and they're scared to death. Verse 21, Acts 27, Since many were going without food, Paul stood up among them and said, You men should have followed my advice not to say a this damage and loss. You remember previous audio, first part of the Acts chapter 27, when they were at Fair Haven, Paul said, Uh-uh, let's stay here. Let's winter here. Let's don't go up to Phoenix. They didn't listen to him, but they had a fair south wind, so it seemed reasonable to go to Phoenix, and so they tried. But Paul, even though the evidence was against him, objected. Okay? So, now, 14 days have gone by, and many people were going without food. Well, they had food. Why hadn't they eaten it? Because Paul, the reason we know they had food is because Paul told them to eat, so they obviously had food. That's in verse 33. Uh, which is uh, ahead a little bit. As they was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. So they had food, but they hadn't eaten it for 14 days. Why hadn't they? Well, 
here's one option to find favor with their God as a fast. Well, no. John Gill denies that, and I agree. I don't think that's why they had eaten. They weren't fasting in the middle of a violent storm. John Gill says that the reason they were not eating was because they had no appetite because of nausea and fear of death in the storm. It's hard to eat when you think you're going to die. Hard to eat when you're violently seasick. Acts 27, verse 21 in the Lexham English Bible has this, and because many were experiencing lack of appetite, which kind of makes it explicit. That translation makes it explicit why they weren't eating, because they had lost their appetite. John Gill and Jameson Fawcett and Brown said they had no time to eat because they were trying to save the ship, running around trying to, to do sailor things to keep the ship from sinking. But whatever the option was, it wasn't because they had thrown the ship overboard. Remember on the second day they started jettisoning the cargo, and people say, some you might think, well, they threw the food overboard. No, that was their cargo. That was food. It was wheat, but that wasn't their food, the wheat they were going to eat. That wasn't the food they were going to eat. They kept that. Just reading verse 33, Paul told them to eat. But anyway, it's hard to eat in the middle of a violent storm like that. And by the way, it, it does not say that all of them weren't going without food. The Holman Christian Study Bible says that many were going without food. The translation is ambiguous. I looked it up in the Greek, and, it's, and it literally says there being much time without food. Well, it doesn't say who was going without food. It just says there being much time without food. That's, that's fuzzy. It's ambiguous. The J.P. Green translation of the Greek says there being much fasting, but it doesn't say by whom there was much fasting. So English translations are are, are all all over the place. The Good News translation says that everyone was going without food. The NASB, the NIV, and the Amplified said they were going without food. It doesn't say all of them or some of them. It just says they, kind of ambiguous. And the Holman Christian Study Bible and the Lexham English Bible say that many were without food. So... So, to summarize, they began to throw some of the cargo overboard. That's the wheat in verse 18, verse 33. They ate after having not eaten for 14 days, and after they ate, then they threw the rest of the cargo overboard. All right, then, continuing with verse 21, since many were going without food, Paul stood up among them and said, You men should have followed my advice not to sail from Crete and sustain this damage and loss. Now, it sounds like Paul is saying, I told you so, and you know, there's nothing people hate to hear, then I told you so, but I don't think that's what he was doing. What he was doing here, in my opinion, he was trying to buttress his authority. He was saying, look, guys, I know you don't want to listen to a landlubber prisoner like I am, but you will remember, I said that we shouldn't have sailed from Fair Havens when we were at Crete, and you know, I was right then, maybe I'm right now. He's beginning to take charge of the ship. His advice had already been proven exactly right, and so maybe further advice he was about to give should also be right. Here's what John Gill says about this. The Apostle Paul addresses them in a very courteous manner and does not use sharp reproofs, severe language, or upbraid and insult them. He merely reminds them of the counsel he had given, which, had it been taken, would have been to their advantage. And rather, he mentions this, that since what he had foretold was in part already come to pass they might give the more heed to what he was about to say to them. So I think there's your answer right there. Paul was not trying to be obnoxious. Here's Jameson Fawcett and Brown's take on the matter, quote, not meaning to reflect on them for the past, but to claim their confidence for what he was now to say. Now we're starting to see a real change. Paul is starting to get real authority here in the midst of this crisis. We go to verses 22, 23, and 24. Paul continues to exhort the 
men on board. Now I urge you to take courage, because there will be no loss of any of your lives, but only of the ship. For this night an angel of the God I belong to and serve stood by me, and said, Don't be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar, and look, God has graciously given you all those who are sailing with you. Now notice that when Paul is in bad shape, God would give him supernatural visions for encouragement. For example, after the riot at the Sanhedrin two years earlier, when Paul had returned from his third journey and was in Jerusalem, and the Jerusalem mob had falsely accused him of being anti-Jewish and anti-temple and anti-law, and there was a big riot and he was in the Antonia Fortress after he had appeared before the Sanhedrin, and there was another riot there. He had a vision there, and this is what the Lord directly told Paul in Acts 23, verse 11. The following night the Lord stood by him and said, Have courage, for as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. In Rome. Well, if you're going to testify in Rome, that means you've got to get there. But that was two years earlier. Maybe Paul needed a little bit more bucking up, so he had another vision from an angel in the midst of that horrible experience on the ship. And so Paul passes along the encouragement to, to the men, and he says, all, God is gracious, has given you all those, and I believe that all there means in this case, all without exception, you're all going to survive. So listen to me. Of course, I'm sure they're more than willing to listen to him now. They had lost all hope. Verse 20 says that they were beginning to lose all hope, but I'm sure by now they had lost all hope, and Paul's saying, uh-uh, hang in there, take courage. Verses 25 and 26, Paul continues speaking to the men on the ship. Therefore, take courage, men, because I believe, God, that it will be just the way it was told to me. In other words, told to him by the vision from the angel that they were all going to be saved, and, they, and Paul was going to make it to Rome. Verse 26, however, we must run aground on a certain island. That's the bad news. They are going to have to run aground, but actually it's not really bad news. That's what they were trying to do. They just couldn't do it in the dark. They didn't know where they were. Now, notice that God rescue, is rescuing the men through natural means. God does supernatural and providential stuff all the time, but he never overrides the natural order. They had to do certain things. We're going to see here in a minute. They had to stop the sailors from leaving on the skiff. That's natural precautions. So even though they had supernatural aid and guidance, they took natural means to protect themselves, and that means they had to, find, they had to figure out how to run aground on a certain island. It's not magic. When God helps us, it means we might have to endure things before the final deliverance, and they had to endure their ship breaking up and running aground. But at any rate, everything Paul predicted had come to pass, as Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown say, says, say, and we might note here that the ship's company must have held Paul in awe after that, after they got saved on that island. And later on, we're going to see when they got to, they landed, the, Paul got bit by a viper and he didn't die. <laughs> They're starting to think he's a god. He's had visions from Jesus, and he's told them to go, to stay when they should have stayed, and they would have been saved. And now he's telling them they're all going to be saved on the ship, and now he gets bitten by a snake, and he doesn't die. Ooh, this Paul must really be something else. We go to verse 27, Acts 27. When the 14th night came, that means the 14th night of the storm, we were drifting the Adriatic Sea. That's the sea between Greece and Italy, and actually very far south to was actually between uh, the Balkan countries, present-day Balkan countries like Slovenia, Herzegovina, Bosnia, and all that. But the sea also extends southward uh, between the heel of Italy and Macedonia, and you go further south between Greek and Greece and Sicily. And, and some people say that in the ancient times they went all they considered the Adriatic Sea to go all the way down to North Africa. 
but at least as far as south as Sicily and Crete, as the NIV study Bible points out. Now, why did these sailors think that they were approaching land in the middle of the night? Well, they could have heard the breakers breaking on the shore, as the NIV study Bible and Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown say. They could have smelled land, as Clark says. Things smell a little different when you get close to the land. They could have heard the agitation of the sea and the rippling of the tide. They might have heard the flight of seabirds, as Adam Clark says. That sailor stuff, those people were mariners. They knew they, knew they were near land. We go to verses 28, 29, and 30 of Acts 27. They took a sounding and found it to be 120 feet deep. When they had sailed a little farther and sounded again, they found it to be 90 feet deep. Then, fearing we might run aground in some rocky place, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight to come. Some sailors tried to escape from the ship. They had let down the skiff into the sea, pretending that they were going to put out anchors from the bow. All right, so the ship's company is getting closer and closer to land. It's in the middle of the night. They don't know where they're going, but they know that it's getting shallower and shallower, and pretty soon that boat, that ship, is going to crash into the rocks. The ship will be destroyed, and they're going to drown. And so that's why some sailors tried to escape from the ship. They figured if they had a little boat, they could maneuver it around the rocks, maybe get to the, to the shoreline. And they lied such great, you know, the sailors are supposed to be in charge of the ship. You put your life in the hands of sailors when you get on a boat, and this is what they do. They try to haul out of there, pretending that they were going to put out anchors from the bow. Now, why did they drop four anchors from the stern? Well, they were trying to slow the ship down so it wouldn't run into the ground, wouldn't run into the rocks on the island. Now, John Gill says the ancients did anchors that way. They threw them out the back, uh, out the stern, not from the bow like in modern navigation, but it seems to me that verse 30 proves Gill wrong because it says that the sailors trying to escape in the skiff were pretending that they were going to put out anchors from the bow, so that must have been a normal thing to do. Now, it's an interesting word here, verse 29, the ship's company and the sailors dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight to come. I don't think they were praying to any pagan god. The KGV said wish, the NIV says prayed. He just could mean they... Jameson, as Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown say, they anxiously or devoutly wished for daylight to come. It's not like they were praying to some god. I don't think they knew how to pray to any god. As I said earlier, these sailors that had tried to escape with the skiff, the dinghy, they weren't very gallant. They were leaving over 200 people to die because once those sailors left the ship, there would be no one who knew how to manage the ship, just soldiers and prisoners, and they would have gone down. There they would not have been a thing they could do. And it's probably more than just sailors. It's probably the ship's officers, or it could be. Because, as Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown say, these sailors could not have fooled the ship's officers by saying they were going to let out an anchor from the bow. The ship's officers would, would know what they're up to because they know how to sail a ship. So the implication is that the ship's officers were actually in on the plan to escape, and they were the ones planning to get into the skiff as well as the other s sailors. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown have an interesting speculation. They say that Luke's nautical skill may have detected the ruse. And he might have looked at that and said, wait a minute, that's not right, and gone and relayed that knowledge to Paul. I don't know where Luke got his nautical skill from. He's apparently very knowledgeable about sailing, according to those who have studied the uh, last ch couple of chapters of Acts. He has a lot of sailing terminology in there, so it, it, people infer from that 
that Luke was very skilled, and he might have known what was going on when he saw these sailors trying to escape. At any rate, we move on to verses 31 and 32 of Acts 27. Paul said to the centurion, centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. In other words, unless those sailors stay here, you're all going to die because we're your soldiers, we're prisoners, and we don't know how to sail this thing. Verse 32, Then the soldiers cut the ropes holding the skiff and let it drop away. Now the soldiers are listening to Paul. They know that Paul knows what he's talking about. You can see Paul's in charge now. Notice that Paul didn't talk to the captain and the pilot about the men escaping, the sailors escaping on the skiff. John Gill points that out and says the reason is probably because they were in on the scheme, as I just finished mentioning, whereas the centurion Julius and the soldiers, not being sailors, were probably unaware of what was going on. Now let me point out here that Paul was not a fatalist. He didn't say to himself, no matter, no matter if the sailors are leaving, they can do what they want to do. Jesus has already told me we're going to make it, and if all the sailors leave, it doesn't matter. God's going to get us to the shore. No, sir, you can't do that. Supernatural providence always works in conjunction with human beings behaving responsibly. Here's a quote from Jameson Fawcett and Brown. In full assurance of ultimate safety in virtue of a divine pledge, that means the vision he had, all in the ship, the vision that Paul had that they were going to make it to Rome, in virtue of a divine pledge, in full assurance of ultimate safety, in virtue of a divine pledge to all in the ship, Paul speaks and acts throughout this whole scene in the exercise of a sound judgment as to the indispensable human conditions of safety, a divine promise, human conditions of safety. And as there is no trace of any feeling of inconsistency between these two things and his mind, of course not. God's given you a promise that you're going to not be poor and you're not going to be hungry. That doesn't mean that you could just sit around on your fanny and not work and not pray about decisions to make, business decisions to make, labor decisions, work decisions, education decisions. All the, you got to live a normal life just like everybody else. The difference is, is that you have divine aid in doing it, but he's not going to do it for you. you got to live out a normal human life. The soldiers cut the skiff away, let it drop, even though they didn't have authority to do that because they weren't the sailors. The sailors were in charge of the boat, but by this time, authority had broken down. People were listening to Paul. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we have finished this section of Acts 27, ending in verse 32 and beginning in verse 13. We will continue on with the, with the, the voyage. We will take up Paul's shipwreck on the island of Malta in the next audio. I hope you stay tuned for that one, and I hope you enjoyed this audio.